So tonight, as I'm guessing most of you know, we're continuing our series about the resurrection and relationships by talking about understanding and caring for our LGBT friends. Now, a couple of things to say right off the bat. We cannot say all that needs to be said about this topic in one sermon. It's not going to happen. So as we have done with all the sermons in this series, there'll be a question and answer time in the choir room after. So as you're sitting there and things come up, feel free to write them down, bring them downstairs, and we'll continue the conversation. That would be great. And then I also want you to know that um, I talked with some of our LGB friends before I gave this message. I actually gave them a run-through of it on Tuesday. It's not something I normally do with a sermon. But I said to them, I don't want to preach a sermon that would in any way make you feel hurt or marginalized or discouraged. And so I just want you to know that um, some of our lesbian and gay and bisexual students have already heard a version of this. Their comments have made it a little better since then, so just heads up. Matt. So we're going to start here. I want you to repeat after me. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Say that again. I may be wrong. One more time. I may be wrong. It's very tempting in a topic like this, which is divisive and can polarize communities, for us to say, not only may you be wrong, but you are wrong, or to take kind of corporate ownership, like, well, we may be wrong. But it's really important to say, I may be wrong. Because that lends itself to a posture of humility and a teachable spirit that I think is really necessary on this topic. We need to be willing to say, I may be wrong, so that we can learn better how to live well together. So that's where we start tonight. We start with humility. We start by admitting we may be wrong, no matter where we may be. So we're going to begin by defining some terms, terms that are thrown about, terms that have different meanings to different people, and we're going to define them in such a way so that as we go through the rest of the sermon, we'll all know what we're talking about, all right? So often, you see these, this combination of letters around, LGBTQ. And some of you know what most of the letters stand for, and some of you aren't quite sure. So we're just going to walk through what this little mnemonic device is all about. It's an easy way to talk about our gay and lesbian friends. So the first two, lesbian and gay. So lesbian refers to women who have same-sex attraction. Gay refers to men who have same-sex attraction. These are people who are attracted to people of the same sex, and they may or may not be sexually active. All right? So two things there. First, they're attracted to people of the same sex the way 96% of us are attracted to people of the opposite sex. Emotionally, psychologically, and attraction, as you all well know, is about who catches your eye. You know how this goes. You're sitting in the downstairs area of the library, the, the part that looks over the lawn, you know, the big glass windows where it's nice to kind of chill. And you see someone walk down the path, and you're kind of doing your reading, and suddenly you go like this. <laughs> and you think, who is that? <laughs> and you, maybe you see that person again later, and you think, oh, there's that person again. 
Or maybe when you moved in, you maybe remember way back when you moved into the dorm when it was like this all the time, like. <laughs> you were like, come on, God's rules. <laughs> and for most of us, that attraction is toward people of the opposite sex. We just normally, we just gravitate right there. And for our friends for whom they, they are lesbian or gay, for them, it's the same kind of attraction, but for people of the same sex. It's the same kind of like, oh, who is that? When I was talking with our students about this beforehand, they said, would you please tell them that we are not all sex monsters? <laughs> and we could kind of laugh at that, but there's this assumption, I think, too often, particularly in the Christian community, that when we talk about someone as gay, there's this assumption that they're out there just having sex with all kinds of people. And so we come up with this phrase, which we need to retire. This phrase is called the gay lifestyle. The gay lifestyle. We're just not going to use that anymore because it doesn't mean anything. What we think it means is, is that person having sex with another person? But a gay lifestyle could be like 100 million different things for every gay person who's out there. Like in my own life, I've had like seven different straight lifestyles. Right? Since I was about 20, right? There was like the engaged lifestyle as a seminary student, and then there was like, you know, a, uh, married as a pastor, and then not married as a pastor, and then not married as a grad student, and then not married as a professor, and then not married as a chaplain, and then married as a chaplain. All kinds of straight lifestyles going on right there. So let's just retire the phrase gay lifestyle because it's just pejorative. And it simplifies something in ways that I don't think are fair to anybody. So when I'm talking about tonight, people who are gay and Christian, I'm talking about our friends who are in this room, who are attracted to people of the same sex and may or may not be sexually active. All right? They're attracted to people of the same sex and they love Jesus and they love the church. And they're trying to figure out how to do those things together. By the way, uh, we'll get on bisexual in just a minute. Um, while lesbians will sometimes refer to themselves as gay, gay men will not refer to themselves as lesbians. <laughs> so one of those words is kind of all-inclusive and the other one is a little more, just so you know, all right. <laughs> bisexual, bisexual. This can be a little confusing to many of us who are uh, just kind of attracted exclusively to one sex. Even for people who are attracted to the same sex, they don't quite get the bisexual people. So our dear bisexual people are people who are attracted to people of either sex. For them, a person catches their eye, and they are equally attracted to either men or women. When they're thinking about a potential life and what it could look like, sometimes they picture it with an opposite-sex person, and sometimes they picture it with a same-sex person. If you talk to them, they would say, it's more about the person than about the gender. They're attracted more to a person than a particular gender. So L, G, B, and now T, transgender, transgender. Transgender has been getting a lot of press lately, as Bruce Caitlyn Jenner made a very public transition as we have debates over bathrooms. So what exactly is this? These are people who believe themselves to be in the wrong body. Their insides do not match their outsides. 
The technical term for this, or one term for this, is gender dysphoria. There's a, there's a, a mismatch. And some transgender people have this from the time when they're really little. And they think, I'm not a girl. I don't want to do that at all. I'm just not interested in that. And then when puberty comes and their body really starts to look more and more like a girl, like a woman, it can put them into a deep depression because they think, I, this is not how I feel. I don't feel like a woman. I feel much more like a man. Everything about me. And we're not going to talk a lot about this tonight. We're going to talk more about the LGB. And partially that's because there's a lot of Christian research that has yet to be done on our transgender brothers and sisters and with our transgender brothers and sisters. Mark Yarhaus is a Christian psychologist who's doing emerging work on this. He's got a great book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. If you're interested and you want to learn more, he'd be great about it. They're trying to determine is that there's something that happens biologically in utero? Is there, is there a way to, to think about this? And then just a, a free note on the bathroom thing. Here at Calvin College, we have a number of unisex bathroom stalls for any student who may be transgender or any guest of ours who may come on campus and may be transgender. So instead of having to navigate men's bathroom, women's bathroom, who's going to be there, how's this going to go, we have these just wonderful single stall unisex bathrooms. It's like North Carolina, it's not that hard. You know, just, just be kind. Now the Q. Q often stands for queer. And when I was growing up, queer was a derogatory word for people who identified as same-sex attracted. But the LGBTQ community has redeemed the word and said, no, we're going to take that word. We're going to own that word. And we're going to use it as a self-descriptor. And so it can be an all-inclusive word for sexual minorities. It can also be the word for those who don't neatly align in another category. So there are people who have no sexual attraction to either gender, asexual people. There are people who don't really align with either gender, agender people. And so queer is kind of a way to bring everything under that. Q can also stand for questioning, for people who had a season where they're like, I'm not really sure what's going on in me, um, but I don't think I'm straight. So that's the LGBTQ. And now there are two more words that I think it's really important for us to define before we go forward. Single. Wow, why is this an important word? Because we throw it around and we mix it up with the word we're going to look at next. So what does it mean to be single? A person who's not currently in a romantic relationship. A person who may or may not be sexually active. It doesn't take uh, a long time of viewing popular culture to know that there are many singles in our world who are very sexually active. Because you're single doesn't mean you're not sexually active. Most of us would fall into the category as followers of Jesus who are not single. We wouldn't be sexually active. That wouldn't be us, but we'd still be single. Okay? This next word, celibate, different from single. All right? To be celibate is a single person who is not sexually active and pledges to remain so, often in response to a faith commitment. So where a single person could live a long season of life as a single person and not have sex with anybody because he or she is a follower of Jesus and says, I'm not going to do that, but they may still be open to the idea of romantic relationships. So they're single, but they're not celibate. 
Someone who is celibate says, I'm going to pledge that I'm not even going to be open to romantic or sexual relationships in a response to my faith. I'm going to make a commitment because of my faith. Now, the Catholic Church, as you know, has years, decades, centuries ahead of us on this because they have had priests and monks and nuns who took vows of celibacy along with vows of poverty and stability and other things. And so it's very common in Catholic communities to talk about being celibate. And for those of us who are in Protestant communities, we're like, I don't get that. I don't know what that is about. And we're going to talk in a little bit about what the church can do and some interesting options around helping Protestant brothers and sisters who choose celibacy. So those are the terms. That's the background. That's kind of what we're dealing with. I hope that helps you understand some basic things. Now, of course, the next big step is to say, okay, what does Scripture have to say all about this? That's the big thing, right? What does Scripture have to say about these things? Well, Scripture says lots of things about lots of things. And so you have to have a tool for approaching Scripture. And for those of you who have already taken a Bible class, you know about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are the principles you use to interpret Scripture. If you think of hermeneutics as the shovel, all right, it's the tool that you're going to dig and learn some things. Exegesis is what you dig up. It's the fruit of your labor. So you use good hermeneutics to end up with good exegesis. Are you still with me? You will not be quizzed on this. (laughs) So hermeneutics. Now, some people say you don't have to interpret Scripture. You just do what Scripture says. It says men should have short hair and women should have long hair. You just do it. It says you can handle, Jesus says you can handle snakes. You can handle snakes. Why is this complicated? It says you should greet people with a holy kiss. It says you should raise your hands when you pray. Why is this hard, people? Just do what it says. Now, in this community, we say it's, there is a whole beautiful method of interpreting Scripture, and we use Reformed hermeneutics. And so when we're looking at a Scripture passage, we ask questions of the passage. We say, who wrote this passage? To whom? Why? When? In what language? What genre was it? What principles is this person trying to communicate and teach then that we can take out now? Reformed hermeneutics. You try to get the whole picture and determine which principles are timeless and enduring. All right? Does it make sense? Mostly. So that being said, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture through the lens of Reformed hermeneutics. Page 929 in your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 5, we'll look at 9 through 12, and then 6, 9 through 20. We're skipping uh, the part in the middle because it's about lawsuits, and that's really not what we're talking about tonight. (laughs) So I'm going to read 5, 9 through 12, and then 6, 9 through 20. This is Paul. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy 
or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside, outside the church, he means there? Is it not those who are inside the church that you are to judge? God will judge those outside the church. Drive out the wicked person from among you. And then skip down to verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, the thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to keep this open and kind of look at it a little more deeply. So who's writing here? Paul, right? Paul is an apostle. What do we know about Paul? He was very well educated. He had one of the best educations available to Jewish men of his day. He could read and write at least two, probably more, languages. He had the entire Old Testament most likely committed to memory. He was also very well-traveled, and he was a student of other cultures. He paid attention wherever he went to the stories and myths and traditions and patterns and routines of that culture so that he could find some way to connect what they were doing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul loved to learn. He loved to pay attention. He was passionate about the gospel. That's Paul. He's writing at a time when he's away from the Corinthians. The genre is a letter. We know that there are two. We've got those in the book. There probably are two more that we don't have in the book. Maybe there are others, but they refer to some letters that we don't have. So there had been this ongoing back and forth communication and this letter is in a response to a letter that they wrote him where they asked him some questions. Now, who are these people to whom he's writing? Well, these are the Corinthians. These are people who lived in Corinth. Corinth was a Greek city. It was a port city. It was a big city. And it had become part of the Roman Empire. And so there was a lot of traffic back and forth, in and out of Corinth, a lot of single men from the shipping industry who would flood into Corinth and then go back out. So a lot of back and forth and back and forth. And 
As you can imagine, in the town where there's a lot of young men coming in and out regularly, in the city of Corinth, you could get any kind of sexual act you wanted at any time of day or night. And the Romans had some really interesting laws around sexual ethics. They said prostitution, perfectly legal. We kind of look down on it for the women who are doing it, but, you know, it's legal. And in fact, they said that prostitution might be a really good deterrent to adultery. You know, be faithful to your wife. Don't, like, sleep around with other, like, women of high stature, but just, you know, every now and then if you have to. And there was this idea that you could really uh, sleep around except... There was one strong law that said if you are a person of aristocratic status, you cannot commit adultery or have sex with somebody else of aristocratic status. Why? Because you could conceive a child and that would mess up everybody's inheritance. So it was all about keeping your stuff. All right? It wasn't about uh, honoring your wife or loving marriage. It wasn't about that at all. It was about keeping your stuff. There were also men in Greek and Roman culture who took advantage of boys sexually. And this is called pederasty, and it happened throughout this time period. And so Paul is writing to people about sexual morality who really have no idea what he's talking about. And what's fascinating here that he, as a Jew, is writing to both Jews and Greeks who are making up this church, he doesn't say to them, well, you know, it's all in the Torah, people. Like, come on. Let's go. Let's, be, let's bring up the Jewishness. Come on, dial it up. What he does is he roots it in the resurrection. Now, there were people in Corinth who said, Food is for the body and the body is for food. Those are all quotes right there from the culture of the day. And when they said that, they meant sex is for the body and the body is for sex. What you do with your body doesn't really matter. What matters is your soul. That's what matters. Your body's just going to be destroyed. In fact, the quote probably goes all the way to the end where it says God will destroy both. It's probably the full quote. So they said, it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. Your body doesn't matter. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Listen up. Your body matters. Your body matters. And it matters because God himself took on flesh and became a body. And Jesus still has a body. It's not like he ascended into heaven and was like, woo, done with that. Take that off. He is still incarnate, fully human, fully divine. He still has a body. And Paul says, in baptism, you're united with him. You're united with him. Are you really going to take the body of Christ and unite it with a prostitute? That's disgusting. Why would you do that? He says, your eyes are on your own resurrection. Your eyes are on the new heaven and the new earth. You're not going to be dominated by any temptation you have here on earth. You are set free from those things, free to live a life of holiness to our God. He says, you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. This is who you are. And those sins are going to keep pulling on you, and they're going to keep pulling on you, keep pulling on you, but you are part of the resurrection. Your body matters to God. It's a really fascinating approach to a really difficult topic. 
And it's important to know that he wrote in Greek because there are a couple of words that are used here that some people say how they hearken right back to Leviticus and other people aren't so sure. And so knowing the language and studying the language is a really important part of good reformed hermeneutics. Now all that being said, there are people who read this passage and the other five or six that have to do with same-sex sexual behavior not orientation, behavior, and they come out on different sides. Now, the Gay Christian Network has very generously just labeled them side A and side B. Side A and side B. Now, I use a really simple mnemonic device to remember which is which. A stands for affirms gay marriage, which we'll talk about in just a second. B stands for the biblical call to celibacy. All right, just a really, it's a thumbnail way to think about it. It doesn't mean that the people who affirm gay marriage don't love scripture and don't love Jesus. That's not it. And it doesn't mean that the people who say biblical call to celibacy don't love people. All right, it's just a really easy mnemonic device. So our side A brothers and sisters have this approach. They say, you know, these biblical passages, they're culturally and historically limited. They're just kind of limited to their time and to their place. Paul here was talking about people who took advantage of each other sexually. He's talking about a power dynamic. He's talking about masters and slaves and men and boys. He's not talking about what we talk about now, which is long-term, committed, monogamous marriage. That's not what he's talking about. So these passages are limited in their scope and focus, kind of like the passages that say uh, women can't wear pearls or braid their hair. They're just, they're just kind of bound to their time. They also say God is love. And this is a really kind of simple thing, like, well, okay, yeah, God is love. But they say, no, look, throughout Scripture again and again, God loves his people and he does what it takes to bring them in. And when we imitate that love, Scripture tells us that We're part of God's love. So how are we to say to two people who want to serve each other in marriage, who want to give themselves to each other, who want to lay down their lives for each other in marriage, that they're wrong? When they can have beautiful, fruit-bearing marriages. They also point out, our brothers and sisters, they say, hey, we're, we're not supposed to judge. And what's interesting in this passage, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, is that while same-sex sexual activity is defined, there are lots of other things on that list. Getting drunk, having sex with anyone you're not married to, reviling people. That would refer to any comments section on any website ever in the history of the world. (laughs) Robbing. Right? There are are a lot. There's a big list here. And they say, how dare you point to people who are in same-sex sexual relationships and say, you know, this is about you, without looking at the plank in your own eye about idolatry or greed or fornication or getting drunk. Like, that's, that's not fair. Why would you do that? And then fourth, our brothers and sisters on side A say, you need to give hope to our lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender friends because their lives are on the line. Let me read you some statistics. Lesbian, gay, or bisexual youth are four times 
more likely to attempt suicide as their straight peers. Suicide attempts by lesbian, gay, bisexual youth and questioning youth are four to six times more likely to result in injury, poisoning, or overdose that requires treatment from a medical professional compared to their straight peers. Nearly half of young transgender people have seriously thought about taking their lives and one quarter report having made a suicide attempt. And this is particularly relevant for those of us who come, may come from more conservative Christian communities. Lesbian, gay, bisexual youth who come from highly rejecting families, families that say, we don't want anything to do with you once they're told that they're gay, they are more than eight times as likely to have attempted suicide as lesbian, gay, or bisexual youth who reported low or no family rejection. And each episode of victimization, physical, verbal harassment, abuse, increases the likelihood of self-harming behavior by two and a half times. So our side A friends are saying, what are we doing here? Are we loading on more than people are able to carry? There are lives on the line here. How are we going to give hope to them? How are we going to give hope to our brothers and sisters that say there is more to life, you can have a rich and rewarding life, and we love you, and the church loves you? There are lives on the line. So now let's look at what our brothers and sisters on side B talk about. This is the biblical call to celibacy. This is, uh, it's important to note, this is the historic Christian teaching, all right? So when I say this is the historic teaching of the church, I mean like the church, all right? Catholic, Orthodox, Wesleyan, Anglican, Episcopalian, Reformed, Christian Reformed, Presbyterian, Church of God in Christ, African Methodist Episcopal, like the church. This is the historic teaching of the Christian church. And this is also where Calvin College is, side B, affirming a biblical call to celibacy. So our friends on side B say that the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality is timeless. It's not culturally bound. Paul knew what he was talking about. There was a word for the power dynamics. There was a word for older men who took advantage of younger men in Greek, and he didn't use it. He used a completely different word. They say he, he's very sophisticated. He knows what he's writing about. And they also point out that anytime same-sex sexual activity is referred to in Scripture, it's referred to in a negative way. It's referred to as a don't do this thing. And they also point out that what is held up are men and women in marriage, that sex is for a husband and a wife in marriage. So they say that these things are timeless and that uh, like hospitality or forgiveness or tithing, like this is just part of the practices of the Christian church that have been carried on for centuries. Then they also say God's love invites obedience as a response. Our side B brothers and sisters say, look, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ is so amazing 
that we just give everything to him in response. We work so hard on being obedient in all these areas as a gift back to God. That love means laying down the things that keep us from God. It means living more and more like Jesus himself. Love invites obedience as a response. And then they say we need to help people find hope in non-sexual, intimate relationships. Now, what's really interesting in Scripture is that same-sex love is all over Scripture. All over Scripture. Joseph and his brothers at the end of the story, not so much earlier on. Ruth and Naomi, David and Jonathan, Jesus and his disciples. You have the women who started the Philippian church. There is same-sex intimate, know-and-be-known kind of love throughout Scripture, but it's not sexual. And they say, we need to help each other find hope in those kinds of friendships. Some of you right now have like the best same-sex friendships you've ever had in your whole life. You get up in the morning, and you look across the room, or you go to the kitchen, and you think, I don't know what my life was like before I met you. You are so awesome. This is a beautiful and good and holy gift. Can we lift up the beauty of same-sex friendship instead of getting weirded out by it? So, uh, for our friends who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, Eve Tushnet was here last week. She's an author. She wrote the book Gay and Catholic. She herself is a celibate. And she says... Um, one of the things that she'll often hear, because uh, some students met with her and asked her the question about, like, what do you do when you have a really great same-sex friendship going on, but then you start to kind of get attracted to the person? And she says, that's such a good question. And she says, now, what I hear often from pastors is, oh, you got to back way off, back off that friendship. And she says, I say the complete opposite. Because she says, in my experience, staying with the friendship and working through the attraction gets you to the other side. It, the attraction mellows out and the friendship deepens. So she says, if you can hold on and hang in there, it's much better to work through it and watch the attraction mellow than it is to lose a great friendship. And I think those of us who have dealt with opposite sex friendships have seen kind of the same thing. If you get freaked out because you're starting to be attracted to somebody, well, he's dating somebody else, he's not going to date you, and should I maybe pull back from him? Uh, Would I lose a really good friendship if I did that? We need to frame up friendships deeply and intimately. And then our side B brothers and sisters say this. You have to live in light of eternity. Souls are on the line. There is a deep and abiding belief among our side B friends that allowing anyone to live in unrepentant sin is a danger for their spiritual health. It's a danger to their souls. And whether that's unrepentant greed or idolatry or sleeping with somebody you're not married to, If it's unrepentant and the church is looking the other way, that's a problem. 
They say there are souls online. Paul talks about inheriting the kingdom of God. He says kingdom living has to start now. Your eternal life starts now. If you've been around campus for a few years, you know I hate the phrase YOLO. (laughs) Because you don't only live once, you only live forever. You live forever. Your eternal life has already started right now. And so our side B friends are saying, look, we want to have our eternal lives with our brothers and sisters. We want everybody there. We want everybody on the bus. So we are going to call out anyone gently with love that we think, boy, I'm, I'm kind of worried about this in you. Because there are souls on the line. All right. So here's a question. Why does this matter? Why does all this matter? Because for some people in this room, this is not an intellectual exercise. For some people in this room, this is life. And they are trying to figure it out. And they are reading and listening to people on side A, and they are reading and listening to people on side B, and they are trying to figure out how do I live as someone who loves Jesus and also has this attraction to people of the same sex. How do I do that? And they're listening to you and how you talk about this and how it's talked about the classrooms and the dorms to figure out is it safe to talk about this with anybody around here? Even the fact that I don't know where I may end up, can I say that I don't know? So for those of us who are in the about 96% who would identify as straight, we need to help and care for and love on our lesbian and gay and bisexual friends because I think there is no harder position to occupy in the Christian church in the 21st century than to be gay and Christian. And we got to have their backs. So where do we begin? We have to actually listen to their experience. Nope, bump it back one, Catherine. We have to listen to their experience. So on Sunday morning, your alarm goes off, and you have that moment of sloth. <laughs> should I go to church? I don't know if I should go to church. Do I have a ride? Is the weather nice? Like, these are the things that we're weighing. <laughs> but we have friends on this campus who, when their alarm goes off on Sunday morning, they're thinking, do I dare? Do I dare go to a church and know that if I actually told them who I was, just gay, not sleeping around, not doing anything, not running around pride parades, I'm just, this is just who I am. I'm just, if they knew, would they let me stay? Would they let me teach vacation Bible school? Would they let me sing in the choir? I have a friend who pastors, I have a number of friends who pastor here in town. (laughs) I was talking with one of them a couple of weeks ago, and he said he has this uh, gay couple who's joined his church and are are worshiping in his church, and they have children, and they're trying to figure out the baptism thing. And he asked them, you know, just down the street, there's that church that has the rainbow flag, and it's like super open and affirming. Like, can you help me understand why you came here? And they said, 
We don't want to go to a gay church. We just want to go to church. And for him, that was like, huh, I got to figure this out. We got to have his back, too. You have friends who haven't told anybody yet that they're gay or lesbian. And you go out, let's say it's four guys, and you're in a booth, and you've ordered the, pe- the pizza, and you're chatting, and the entire conversation for an hour and a half is about girls. Who's dating who? Who wants to be dating who? Why you broke up with so-and-so? Who you're going to ask out next? I think I'm going to marry this person. What does it take to buy a ring? All the conversation. <laughs> and one person is sitting there thinking, I have nothing to contribute here. It's one thing if the person hasn't told you. It's another thing if the person has told you. I have a friend who went out and had a conversation like this, and all three of the guys at the table knew he was gay. And that was the conversation for the entire 90 minutes. Do you think that makes him closer to those guys or makes him think next time they can go up by themselves? What would it be like for you if you had a crush on somebody and you couldn't tell anybody? Our friends are wondering what their lives are going to look like in ways we all kind of wonder what our lives are going to look like, but we have some foundational blocks. But our friends are thinking, okay, if I choose and commit myself to celibacy, who's going to help me keep that vow? And if I don't and I decide to date and someday get married, who's going to reject me and not come to my wedding? These are just a few of the many stories that are in this community. And how do we respond? So if someone came to you and said, guess what, I've got a new job. And in this new job, I'm gonna make $20,000 more than I did at my old job. Would your first response be, do you know what the Bible says about greed? If you had a friend, a female friend, who walked up to you and said, oh, I'm so glad, I want to introduce you to my boyfriend, would your first response be, do you know what the Bible says about fornication? (laughs) If you had friends who said, we're going up north for the weekend, we're going to do some wine tasting, would your first response be, do you know what the Bible says about drunkenness? So why is it that our first response, when a dear friend says, hey, I'm gay, why is it, do you know what the Bible says about being gay? Let me tell you something. If they're here on this campus, they know. (laughs) They know. It's not a surprise to them. What? I had no idea. (laughs) They know. What that is, that's about us and our anxiety. I don't know how to deal with the situation right now, so I'm just going to throw something out there above the Bible. It's about managing our anxiety. And then the other thing, the other way we respond is we say, oh, well, you know, it's it's probably just a phase, right? Or maybe from a generation older than you all, you'll hear, oh, you just haven't met the right girl yet. You just haven't met the right guy yet. 
It's a phase. You'll grow out of it. Or you can change. People change. You can change. I have a friend who's a psychologist in a different state, and, a, and he was leaving his church a few years ago, and one of his fellow parishioners said to him, hey, do you uh, counsel like those gay people? And my friend was already intrigued. And he said, uh, yes. And this person said, how long does it take to make them straight? And my friend said, how long would it take to make you gay? And he did it to say, look, this is something that is deep and it's mysterious. And can people's behaviors change? Yes, thanks be to God. Some of us have slept with people before we were married. Are we doing that anymore? I hope not. Some of us used to get drunk. Are we doing that anymore? I hope not. Can behaviors change? Yes, thanks be to God. But more and more studies are showing that trying to change someone's sexual orientation only leads the person, particularly in a religious community, to feel even more bitter and angry and depressed. So if you say to somebody, you just need to pray harder, let me tell you about the students I have in my office weeping because they've already spent eight years praying that God would take this away, that God would change them, that there would be just that one girl who would catch their eye. Please, God, don't you dare tell that student who has gone through so much that they just need to pray harder because they prayed harder about that than most of us have about anything. So, when someone tells you they're gay, here are the two things you can say. Are you ready? First, thank you for trusting me with this part of your story. Thank you for trusting me with this part of your story because this person has taken an enormous risk. They've been vulnerable with this most precious thing, this thing that makes lots of people reject them, and they're trusting you with it. So you say, thank you for trusting me with this part of your story. That's the first thing you say. The second thing you say is, how can I help you flourish as a disciple? How can I help you flourish as a disciple? And she may say to you, would you go to church with me? Would you just sit with me and make me feel safe? He may say, you know, I'm going to tell my grandparents in a couple of weeks, and I, I need prayer about that. Or she may say, you know, really, I'm fine. I just need to pass French. That's, that's the only thing that I'm thinking about right now. <laughs> because another fun fact, gay people don't think about being gay all the time. <laughs> what can the church do? What can the church do? Now, those brothers and sisters who may fall on the side A say, well, it's easy what the church can do. We just get to marry people and let them be in leadership and ordain them as pastors. This is not that complicated. But let me ask those of you who are on the side A or those of you who come from communities who are side A, can you love and deeply honor a gay or lesbian or bisexual brother or sister who chooses to be celibate? 
and give them their space and love on them and not tell them that they're missing out. The larger challenge is for the side B congregations. In the book of James, he writes, you can't say to somebody, be warm and well-fed, and then just send them on their way. You can't say to somebody, be warm and well-fed, and not give them a blanket and a sandwich. For 2,000 years, the church has said to our lesbian and gay and bisexual brothers and sisters, be warm and well-fed, enjoy that whole single celibate thing, and we've done nothing to help them. Nothing. Those of you who are coming into adulthood now as singles in the church, you already know that the Christian church, particularly in the United States of America, particularly at this particular juncture in time, lifts up marriage as like the end-all and be-all of the Christian life. And if you're a single, basically you're just in a holding pattern until you can reach the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. So... Many of you know my story. I was married for nine years. I was single for 12. I've been married now for three and a half. The 12 years that I was single, the church was the hardest place for me to be. You go in and everybody's in pairs or in families and you see the husband puts the arm around the wife or the wife reaches over to pat the husband. The mom reaches over to take the baby out of the car carrier and begins to nurse You have baptisms where all the families are together. The art on the walls could all be about families. The illustration in the sermons could all be about child rearing and parenting and marriage. Listen, I'm an ordained Christian pastor. I'm white, I'm straight. I'm a woman. If I can't be comfortable in the Christian church for 12 years as a single person, who can? We have work to do here, people. Lots of work. Paul actually lifts up singleness. He says, I I wish wish y'all were like me, because this singleness thing, this really frees you up. (laughs) You know, you feel like you have to get married, well, you know, Whatever, but really, really, singleness is where it's at. <laughs> and for 2,000 years, the church has been like, well, eh, maybe, I don't know. Can we lift up singleness again? Can we have, like, so we've got a Mother's Day and a Father's Day. Can we have Singles Rock Day in church or something like that? <laughs> where we have all the single, singles come forward, we lay our hands on them, we pray over them, and we love on them. You know, there used to be like youth worship services where the youth would all lead. Pay attention in your churches. How many single people are up in front leading in a particular way? How many are invested? How many are plugged in? And then here's something I want you to think about. What if we had somebody who wanted to pledge a life of celibacy and we said, awesome, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a ceremony. There's going to be jewelry involved. We're going to have a party. We're going to give you a shower. You are going to have Tupperware. Like we are going to do everything it takes to help you keep this vow. Because we know it takes a village to keep a vow. 
We're going to do everything we can. Let's, let's write up some liturgies. Let's get on this. And what if we said, for friends, we're going to bring back the Eastern Orthodox Church had these great rituals in which friends would covenant with each other. There were knights who would covenant with each other and then would be buried side by side because their friendship was so deep and lasting. What if we said, let's bring that back. Let's have covenant ceremonies for friendships. When Wesley Hill was here, he's an author. He wrote Washed and Waiting and Spiritual Friendship. He too is, uh, he's Protestant and also celibate. And he says, I kind of have this wonderful vision that maybe someday I will be in a chaste partnership. I thought, what a good idea. What a hard idea. But what if we said to Wesley and his partner that he might find someday, and we said, we are going to bless this, and we are going to pray over this, and we are going to love on you guys, and we're going to trust you with your sexuality. Just like we trust 96% of the other people with their sexuality. And then what if, when you all graduated, you bought one of those big old houses that has like 10 bedrooms and four bathrooms and, you know, the big tile floor and a giant kitchen, and you said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a family with kids in here and a retired couple, and my best gay friend is going to be here, and my best same-sex friend is going to be here. We're all, we're all going to live together in community because we are going to say that our singles will not do life alone. And if your friendship matters to you, if you are sitting near or you can think of somebody, you think, man, my life is so much better because of this brother, because of this sister. And you're thinking about taking jobs on opposite ends of the country. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Invest in the things that matter. Let me tell you, friends, you can't opt out of this conversation. You are the elders and the pastors and the deacons and the church members who are going to have to figure this out. You're going to join churches and they're going to split over this and you're going to have to decide. You're going to go to a church that wants to split over this and you're going to work to keep it together. This is the thing. This is the next thing. This is the big thing. This is your thing. You've got to be ready for this. And so we end where we began. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. That is the posture of humility that we all need. That's the posture that says, I am teachable. I need to keep learning. I need to keep growing. I may not be right. The posture of humility is what gets us to the table. Because the truth of the matter is, you are wrong. You're wrong about tons of stuff. I'm wrong about so many things. The posture of humility is what gets us to the table. It's the posture that says, if you have said bad things, homophobic, negative, slur things about our lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender brothers and sisters, confess it and come to the table.
If you have said bad things about side A people, confess it and come to the table. If you said bad things about side B people, confess it and come to the table. If you have an idol, maybe it's your athletic ability or your intellect or your musicianship, confess it and come to the table. If you've had sex with someone with whom you are not married, confess it and come to the table. Because this is where Jesus meets us. Paul says to the Corinthians, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified by our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the things you used to be. You are identified now by this. You are identified now by the gospel. You are identified now by the body of Jesus Christ, which has been broken for you. And we gather at this table tonight and we know that the things that unite us are much stronger than anything that would divide us. And so we come to this table, gay, straight, lesbian, asexual, bisexual, transgender, questioning, because this is where Jesus is. And he wants to feed you for the journey and remind you that you are loved. So this is where we come tonight. Are we wrong? Yes. Does Jesus love us anyway? Yes. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise and thanks on this day, for we are part of a church that loves your word and loves your people. And we long to do right by you and by our friends. We long to be obedient. We long to give you our lives. And so we pray, Jesus, that as we come to this table, you will meet us here and extend the words of forgiveness that we need to hear, extend the words of grace that we need to hear, extend the words of strength that we need to hear. And remind us that the order is, I'm a Christian who happens to be gay, or I'm a Christian who happens to be straight, but first and foremost, I'm a Christian. I am deeply loved by my Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for meeting us here. In your name we pray, amen. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after he blessed God, he poured it and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's recite together the words of the Apostles' Creed. There'll be a video first, and when the video invites, we'll stand and respond.
I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe in God. Father Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He descended to hell. The third day. He arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe. I believe. I, I, I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Father Church. Can we saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. 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 And now we invite you to stand in body or in spirit and join your voice, whatever it looks or sounds like, as we declare this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day.